It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast, we're talking about ancient Roman medicine. But in particular, we're going to be focusing on ancient Roman eye care. The Romans, as you're about to find out, they had quite a lot of trouble sometimes with their eyes, and the treatments are, shall we say, interesting to say the least. Now, joining me on the podcast, I was delighted to get back on the show, Dr. Nick Summerton. Nick, he's been on the podcast once before to talk about lessons from the Antonine Plague. But Nick, as you're about to find out, he's also quite an expert on ancient Roman eye care, on the archaeology and the literature that survives. Now, I must give fair warning about this podcast because in part of it, yes, we do delve into what we know about gory, ancient Roman eye surgery. If you're not a fan of that gory detail, then when you hear of it coming, because we do announce it, you might want to skip over that part. But without further ado, here's Nick. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. I'd like to focus on another area that I know you've done a lot of work on, particularly around ancient medicine. And this is around ancient Roman eye care. Yes, again, an infectious disease like the Antonine Plague, but something that seems to be particularly prevalent in the Roman world. And probably hygiene practices weren't quite as good as we'd like them to be. And the water in baths, for example, was not as clean as Marcus Aurelius comments on this himself, you know, the horrible dirty water of bathhouses not being changed as often as perhaps we would like. So crowded bathhouses, communications, poor hygiene practices, dusty roads, all of these would have contributed towards the rise of eye infections. And I think there was also something about the Romans' views about the eye as well. You know, both Pliny, the natural historian who died, unfortunately, at the time of the eruption of Vesuvius, and Celsus, again, probably a doctor, might have just been a very knowledgeable writer in the first century. They talk about the eyes being privileged body parts, the importance of protecting the eyes, the window into the soul, I think Celsus calls it at one point. So the eyes were really important to the Romans. So they did pay attention to those and spread across the empire you do see these what are called votive offerings as well. And a votive offering is something that's left in anticipation of a cure, as well as a thank you gift. And up in Roxeter, the capital of the Cornovi tribe in Shropshire, they found a beautiful set of golden eye votives, which are in the British Museum. They're only small, but you can see them if you search in the British Museum, as well as some bronze eye votives and a lot of plaster eye votives. So the idea being that at Roxeter there was an interest in eye medicine. And eye votives have been found widely across Gaul. And the Temple of Aesculapius at Athens probably was an eye healing centre. Again, a lot of eye votives found there. So representations of eyes, either in gold, plaster, pottery, bronze. But I say the ones at Roxeter are well worth seeing, actually. That's remarkable in itself, the archaeology that survives. And... We must then also have some quite good literary sources talking about eye care in antiquity. Yeah, I mean, we're very lucky with Roman eye care. I mean, one of the reasons it's good to be interested in the area where there's a lot about it. I'm selective which areas of Roman medicine I sometimes pick. Some are tricky, really. But Roman eye care itself, you've got the writings of Scribonius Largus, a physician, 
military physician actually attended with Claudius as part of his retinue invading Britain in AD 43. In fact, he writes in his introduction to his book that he can't write a very comprehensive catalogue of Roman eye medicine because actually he hasn't got all his equipment with him at the moment because he's abroad, which presumably meant he was in Britain. So he wrote about 22 eye remedies in his book. Galen, as you'd expect from what we know of Galen, he had 200 which he collected from various individuals, including somebody called Axios, who was the doctor in the British fleet. So that's quite a nice link to Britain. And then Celsus, again, the encyclopedia or physician we talked about, had a whole chapter in his books on medical materials on eyes. So there's a heck of a lot. And these eye remedies were recipes. And in addition to that, you do have what are called collyrium stamps. And these are lovely objects, actually. And you can understand why people collected them. About 320 of them have been assembled and collected and catalogued by an eye doctor, actually, across Gaul. He works in Lyon. So he's collected a whole catalogue of them, Jacques Voigneau. And then in Britain, there's about a couple of dozen of these. They are beautiful objects. Most of them are about the size of a matchbox. And they're green and sometimes inscribed on the flat surfaces. But on the edges, they have inscriptions. And normally the name of an oculist, the person who possibly owned this or was using it, the name of the eye condition it was treated and the name of the remedy they were using as well. It may say, you know, Marcus Julius's eye remedy for sticky eyes or something like that, you know, made with frankincense. Or it might say Marcus Julius's eye remedy for sticky eyes, which is better than anybody else's remedy for sticky eyes. So there was a bit of marketing as well as details about the recipes. So, but they are lovely little objects and they are found widely across Britain. British Museum, there are examples. There's examples from Rockstar. Chester has some examples, York, London, and Lydney has them as well, and Bath has a couple. So they're widely spread around the countryside, but tell you a lot about the remedies that the doctors were using. Well, let's focus then on one of these places now that I definitely want to focus on, which is that famous settlement just south of Hadrian's Wall, Vindolanda. We have evidence from there about this. Yeah, well, we do. I mean, no stamps from Vindolanda, but a delightful one of the Vindolanda writing tablets, which are little oak documents. It's really a strength report of the first cohort of the Tungrians. So we're talking about the first century. And within there, he talks about there were 296 people at the fort at Vindolanda at that stage. And they divide them into people who were off from active service, if you like, were classified into three groups. Fifteen were, they said, igri, in other words, sick. Six were walnerati, in other words, wounded. And 10 had lipientas, in other words, eye problems. So it was one big category. And so Vindolanda, there was this example. We also know from Vindolanda that there was a hospital at Vindolanda from another one of the oak writing tablets. And they've actually found an eye patch at Vindolanda recently as well, which is quite intriguing. So it's quite an interesting find. I think it's interesting not only in fact of identifying the fact that they did recognise as Lipientis, but actually they were important enough to have it as one of the three categories. So there was one big group of sick, but, you know, these 10 soldiers with eye problems. So they were obviously important to them. And that reflects very much the finding of these collyrium stamps around the place as well. It is remarkable, isn't it, how common it seemed to be back then and that 10 or so of their soldiers had it. And in the Yorkshire Museum, you do have one of these collyrium surviving. We do, yeah, Yorkshire. It's a, quite a thin one. It's got slightly broken off, but Julius Alexander. So it's there in the museum. Hard to find. You have to ask where it is. But I say they are beautiful little objects. 
The important thing is they are not only inscribed, but they're also green. And the greenness of them, because they were from green stone, that may be something about their magical properties as well, because Roman medicine was often not just about the medicine itself, but it was about possibly some magical elements associated with it. So they are green stones, most of these stones, and probably locally sourced as well. And people who know Rosemary Sutcliffe's book on the Ninth Legion, The Eagle of the Ninth, will know that being an eye doctor was a way that you could travelled around the countryside. And that's very much a way, in that case, to go up in Scotland and not be spotted. But actually, eye doctors would wander around from central locations. So they might have made the medicine centrally, and then they'd wander off around the countryside to ply their wares to the locals. And you see this. And in fact, Ralph Jackson at the British Museum has actually plotted the location of the eye stamps in relation to the road network across Britain. And it's quite interesting to see that they do fit quite nicely along it at various points. That's absolutely astonishing. And these eye doctors, as you hinted at earlier from the literary sources, they had various remedies, was it around 20 or so remedies, perhaps more, to deal with the problems that they encountered. Yeah, I mean, there were various different eye problems, lipientas, or we probably call it conjunctivitis nowadays. But there were lots of things. There was dim sight, there would be gritty eyes, sticky eyes. There were lots of different terms that were on these eye stamps, obviously in Latin or Greek, but lots of remedies and lots of recipes to choose from. And I think that's one of the challenges. I mean, as I said, Scribonius had 20, Galen managed to assemble 200. And there's the 320 eye stamps, and some of them have got several remedies on different sides because they might not just have the inscription on one side, they might have it on all four sides, and they do in some situations. So lots of remedies, but when you look at the remedies, they often can be divided into two broad groups. A lot of them have got metallic salts in them, so things like zinc compounds, lead compounds, copper, antimony, zinc, and then other organic things like frankincense, myrrh, opium poppy, quite common things. One of the interesting things that some people think is that these stamps were there as a sort of a quality marker. So what the doctors would be doing, probably in somewhere like York, is they would make up one of the recipes into small little batons. The French doctor who's assembled this list calls them sort of tiny French loaves, really. And they are probably only about an inch long, tiny little batons. And then they would stamp them with the stamp. And then there would be a mark so the person then could be confident what was in that. You know, that was the medicine that was inside it. But interestingly, in Lyon, back in the 1990, they found a doctor's grave and it contained not only some eye stamps, but also some actual cholera, the medicines themselves, which they analysed. And one of them was stamped as being a cholera full of saffron. And it contained no saffron at all, actually. So even when it was stamped, you had to be a bit careful as to what was actually in it. So as I say, the cholera themselves were made centrally, probably places like York or Colchester, stamped, and then they would have been put in a box and then they would have been transported around to be used outside. So what do we know about the medicine boxes that these oculists would be carrying around with them? Well, the medicine boxes are intriguing and beautiful items of equipment. Again, they probably had some magical properties associated with them because they were golden in colour, made of brass, and they were inscribed a lot of the time. But they were beautiful boxes. And in fact, I had a friend who's a retired design technology teacher, Martin Jones, kindly made me one. And he's a very skilled metal worker, and it took him about 50 hours to make one with a lot of work because they are complicated. They were made of brass, a lot of small compartments inside with little lidded compartments, a sliding lid. So the boxes themselves, a brass lidded box, you pull the lid open, inside a number of compartments contain the cleria, and underneath 
on the bottom side, there would be an indentation, like a cut marked indentation, because the idea being that the doctors would have the clearie in this box. They'd stop when they found somebody who needed the treatment. They'd slide open the lid, take out a bit of the hardened clearia, one of these small batons, cut a little tiny bit off. So we're talking about perhaps half a centimetre of this baton. That would then be ground up on a grounding pallet. The lid of the box would be put on, the box would be turned over, and then the indentation on the underside would then be used for mixing that ground up baton with possibly egg, milk or water. I mean, they do talk about using breast milk as well, so I'm not quite sure where they would have got that from, but that was seen as a best recipe. But you mix it with that, and then with a spatula, you would then pop it into the person's eye. So a really intriguing piece of equipment, the box, because it's got these magical properties probably from its appearance, but also it not only contains the clearia, but actually is then can be turned over and be used as a mixing place as well to mix it with the egg, the milk or the water before you pop it in the person's eye. So that was the way they worked. Now, we actually made up some of these clearer as well. And I tested them out with somebody called Sally Pointer down in Wales. Not, I might add, on real patients quickly before I get struck off, just on Petra dishes. We used a recipe called Philo, which was lead, acetate, zinc, gum arabic, and a bit of opium. We couldn't actually put the opium in, unfortunately, again, because of GMC, General Medical Council reasons. But we tested it out against a common antibiotic I would use as a GP, and it worked as well in killing the common bugs that you would get in an eye on a plate, not, as I say, in reality. Because, of course, the problem with all these metals are you don't really want to put lead in people's eyes or mercury in people's eyes. I mean, they will kill the bug, but they're probably not tremendously healthy for your eye. So they were using effective recipes, is what we know. And in fact, in a number of other areas of Roman pharmacology, we are beginning to find things that were remarkably effective. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Well, let's keep on the topic of putting stuff in ancient Roman eyes. I never thought I'd ever say that on the Ancients podcast. Let's go a bit gory because let's talk about cataract surgery in the ancient Roman world. What do we know about it, Nick? Well, we know quite a lot, actually, because Celsus gave us a really nice, well, he gave us a description. I won't say it's necessarily a nice description about how to do cataract surgery. They called it couching. And what we've also found, both across Britain and in Gaul, is cataract needles. They are quite magnificent bits of equipment. They consist really of a bronze object. At one end, there's a needle. At the other end, there's a blob. And a few of them found in France, it looks like they've got a syringe-type mechanism inside them as well. So you could actually pull the object apart and it could act as a syringe, which, again, might have been relevant to the cataract operation. But the way Celsus described they were used is essentially, first of all, you had to have a well-lit room. That was important to him. You then had to have an assistant. That was probably even more important because the role of the assistant was to hold the head of the person having their cataract dealt with. Because, as he said, if the head moves, then that's the end of the eye. So you can't afford to have the head moved. And then you have to go in, he said, not gingerly. You have to go in quite clear what you're going to do you get the cataract needle and you effectively stick it from the top of the eye and right into the lens so in the anatomy of the eye the lens is where the cataract is behind your pupil so in fact what you're wanting to do is to go from probably taking the needle from your forehead and putting it down behind the eye and then you get the lens and essentially push it back into the eye Because what you're trying to do is to get the cataract is, if you like, a blurred lens. So what you're trying to do is to move the lens out of the way so the light can flow through. So once you've done that, you then withdraw the needle, turn the object around and probably warm the blob at the end of the cataract needle. And you could use that just to cauterize the hole that you made at the top of the eye. So a pretty gory, but the important thing is to say, well-lit room sitting opposite the patient and having a good assistant to really clamp the patient's head because because there's no anesthetic and you don't want them to move and you don't want to move the eye either. Now, interestingly, the ones that were found in France, which were like syringes, the idea on those is that you actually put the needle inside and you suck and try to suck the lens out rather than pushing it down. So it's a gory operation, but a successful operation and certainly was copied well into the Middle Ages. And even in some third world countries nowadays, they still do cataract couching in this way. Admittedly, they would not be using an assistant to hold the hand and not having any anaesthetic. But cataract couching is it is a way of allowing the light to pass through into the eye again. Some people would have not wanted to have that operation done. And various of the clearium eye stamps talk about remedies to clarify the vision. And they might have helped a bit by drying out the front of the eye and altering the front of the eye's curvature. So that might have helped the light to go in a bit. But yeah, I can't say I would particularly want to go and have a Roman cataract operation, no matter how successful it was. It was uh, was quite gory. No, no, absolutely not. (laughs) I'm definitely not even going to get onto dentistry as another area, which definitely do not want to talk about for ancient Roman treatments with all that. I mean, Nick, and you've said it just then, but I just want to emphasise it. No anaesthetic back then. When they were doing this surgery, as you say, the assistant seems just as important as the doctor himself to hold the head of the person in place when this, apologies for the graphic detail, when the syringe goes behind the eye. Exactly, yes. It's a very delicate surgery. So if the patient moves their eyes or moves their head, 
you're in a bit of a pickle, actually, to be quite honest. So you tended to cover up the other eye while you were doing the operation as well. So Kelsus, you know, for people who want to try this at home, I say Kelsus does quite a nice description in detail as to how you can actually do it. But no, I wouldn't try to do it. <laughs> do not try it at home. Let's just get that clarified right now. And just before we leave on this, I mean, there was one other bit of archaeological discovery, unsurprisingly, from Vindolanda which is the Roman eye patch. That's extraordinary as well. Yeah, it's the only one I'm aware of. And I guess in terms of once you've put a medicine into somebody's eye, it's always good to keep it closed for a while to allow the medicine to circulate properly. So again, probably a, a bit of padding with an eye patch would make a lot of sense. And certainly after cataract surgery, you'd probably want to just cover it up so nobody can see what's been done really, because I think it would put most other patients off, I would think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Just to wrap it all up then, uh, this has been an amazing eye-opening chat, <laughs> literally eye-opening. Nick, are there any aspects of ancient Roman eye care that we still follow, albeit loosely today? Well, I think there are, interestingly, when I've been doing a bit of work on looking at some other aspects of Roman medicine at the moment and trying to uh, understand what we can learn from the ancients, and I think eyes obviously still remain very important to us, and operations like dealing with interned eyelashes and eyelashes that turn out, we call them ectropion and entropion in medical terms. They were important operations to the Romans. And I don't think as a GP, I would probably deal with them particularly differently today. I'd still pull out the eyelashes without anaesthetic, I suppose. <laughs> but because the eyelashes irritate the eye when they're turned in, that would be the first step before getting off of some proper surgery. So again, we still do things. And what I've talked earlier on about some of the medicines they were used were in effective antimicrobials, the phylocalurium equivalent to my antibiotic I use today. And euphrasia eye drops, which are a homeopathic eye drop, they're not mentioned in any of the Roman texts. But actually, when we, again, going back to the analysis of a Roman calurium from that collection found at Leon I mentioned earlier on, one of those was absolutely crammed full of euphrasia pollen. So it's interesting that an eye drop you can buy over the counter was actually what was being used, albeit probably more for soothing the eyes in a homeopathic way by the Romans. And that's still available. And it was available in Leon to the doctors. I think there is one broader thing which I think you can learn as well, is that if we look in terms of anti-infectives more generally, and it's quite difficult with ancient medicines to be clear exactly what they were and exactly what they were being used for. And sometimes identifying the plants in them is difficult. But a group at Nottingham, they got a, an eye remedy for a sty. It was an ancient Roman remedy, and uh, Greek remedy, which was actually in what's called Bold's Leech Book, which is an Anglo-Saxon medicine book. And they made that up, assessed it much more rigorously than the work I did, and found it not only an effective treatment against styes, but also broadly a useful antimicrobial against MRSA, which people have heard of, that nasty hospital superbug. So to me, there is something about the Roman eye recipes, perhaps indicating there may be things there about treatments for infections more generally, which we can learn from. And certainly the ancient biotics consortium at Nottingham, now moved to Warwick, are actually now scanning ancient texts to look at recipes to see not necessarily whether they can be used precisely for Roman eye care, but can they be used as replacements for antibiotics when our antibiotics are all run out because we've developed resistance to them. So a lot of possibilities, I think, in the future, which will be really quite intriguing. That is really intriguing, really interesting. I mean, it sounds like ancient Roman medicine epitomised by eye care 
just another reason why we are very fortunate to be living in the world we are today, particularly in regards to medicine. I think so. But I think we also have forgotten some valuable lessons from the past. And I think we've talked about that in terms of the Antonine Plague and eyes as well. But there are other aspects of ancient medicine as well, where we can look back at the past and think, actually, are the things that they were doing which made a lot of sense? One of the things that I worry about nowadays is over-regulation of doctors and the idea that we're being given a license to practice, which some people call is a license to deceive, really, rather than actually a license to practice, because the regulatory systems don't really assess us in a way that perhaps would ensure that we are safe doctors. And the Romans had a different approach. And again, in a book I'm just coming out next year on Greco Roman medicine and what it can teach us today, I look at some of these other areas as well, regulation, the importance of prognosis, the importance of trust. There are lots of other things. And Scrivonius Largus, who we talked about, was very committed to the idea of humanity in terms of his writings and the way you deal with patients. And certainly some modern philosophers are looking back at Scribonius Largus, not just because of his eye remedies, but also because of his views about humanity and the way medicine could, should be in the sort of modern world. So there's an awful lot in the past that I think we can draw on in different areas. So eyes and Antonine Plague is just a small part of it, I think, really. Absolutely. Well, that's a great point to leave it on, Nick. And finally, you mentioned it just there. You've got a book coming out and it is called? Uh, it's called Greco-Roman Medicine and What It Can Teach Us Today, covering things like the Antonine Plague, eye remedies, the psychological well-being, but also things like architecture and health and medical personnel as well. So we'll be out by pen and sword books sometime in this year. Brilliant. Nick, Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.